podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. If I had a dollar for everyone who wants to come on this pod and talk to you guys about how amazing they are or how they've magically turned their lives around, I would have a lot of dollars. And look, I'm all about the success stories, but sometimes it's cool to hear about someone who's learning through tough and challenging experiences, which is more often what our days today feel like. So today's guest is going to tell you about what it felt like to be trapped in a business that was no longer fulfilling to him, how he spiraled to a place where he felt he had to leave a business partnership and an old friend, and how he did that without becoming enemies. And there's more. He's also going to share a little bit how he felt like he screwed up his exit negotiations and how you might learn from that. If this ain't relatable to you, I don't know what's going to be. Check it out. Let's get into it. Today's guest is Freddie Lansky, who's a member of our private community, the DC. He'll mention that a few times in today's episode. And he gave an awesome talk at our most recent event in Austin to share this story. Today on the pod, we're bringing it to you. It all started with him setting up a company called iChess with his longtime buddy, Will. Yeah, you know, we met in high school. We really didn't become close friends until we were in college, kind of towards junior, senior year. But it's really funny. Actually, in high school, like, Will was known as being a pretty wild, crazy dude. And now he's anything but. He's a nice, you know, father and and wife and and domestic family man. But I, I was pretty crazy myself. But Actually, I think he got banned. He got banned from my house once because I had a party, and I think he found this like staple gun and he started like just stapling the wall. And the, it was only the unfinished part of the basement, but it was just making a bunch of noise. And my parents were like, "Why are there all these staples in the wall?" <laughs> so he was—he did get banned from my house. This was like twenty years ago or whatever, eighteen years ago, but. It was towards college. We became closer. I went to Boston University for two years, and then I kind of hated it. And so I moved back to Athens, Georgia, and went to the University of Georgia. And when I got there, obviously, I didn't really have a lot of friends. So I kind of immediately gravitated towards the people I, I went to high school with to start kind of rebuilding my friendship and social network. And it, it was through that that we became good friends. A lot of times I would come to his house in Atlanta or he would come to mine. And so our parents would interact as well. And so through that, they started becoming friends as well. Can you tell me like the inception of iChess? Where did it come from? I think we were both two lost souls in Buenos Aires, Argentina. So just to give you some background on that, after college, I did the whole, oh, I'm going to backpack through Europe to figure out what I want to do with my life, which by the way, no one figures out what they're going to do with their life after a three month backpacking trip through Europe. You don't see like 25 cathedrals and stay at a bunch of hostels and then you figure it out. 
So I knew Will was already living in Buenos Aires doing odd jobs and things like that. And my mom is from there. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to take my Spanish, which at the time was kind of at an intermediate level, and take it really, really advanced. I was probably studying 20, 25 hours a week for almost a year there. And that's the main thing that I was up to is studying Spanish in Buenos Aires. Will, he was already living down there. Will had quite a few different odd jobs. One of them was teaching chess online because he was already a chess master. And so he would find clients off Craigslist and also through word of mouth. And it was through that that I kind of approached him one day. I was like, well, why don't I make you a website and a YouTube channel? And instead of charging $20 a class, we can charge $35 or $40 and I'll take a small commission. And we just thought it would be a little side business that would just last a couple months at most. YouTube was a much less competitive place than it is today. There were no chess masters teaching online. There were a few people, but the quality was very low. I mean, today, in most niches, you really have to crush it to make a splash on YouTube or you know, have a huge advertising budget. But back then, late 2010, early 2011, it was crazy. You just put some content on YouTube and boom, it goes viral. It was through that that people really liked his videos because most of the chess masters are very stuffy. They had very thick accents and they were hard to understand and they weren't funny at all. And he kind of came in with this kind of Atlanta swag to the chess videos. <laughs> people loving it, right? They were eating it up, right? Because he would be listening to rap music. Sometimes he would like curse a little bit. Now there's a dozen guys, more than a dozen top chess YouTubers who do that kind of thing. But back then it was really cool. I was in Brazil, I mean, within maybe seven or eight months, we were both already making about two grand a month, which, you know, for backpacker standards, like, this is amazing. I can just keep traveling forever. I love Freddie's last line here. This is amazing. I can just keep traveling forever. I got to interrupt and say my piece because this is such a powerful realization. This idea that you've stumbled onto this, it's kind of like a superpower, right? Like, you really could just travel forever. And the impact, I think it's difficult to overstate how powerful that realization, like feeling it in your bones, that moment when you're like, oh my gosh, I've figured out how to control my income such that I can have all these things that I've always dreamed of. You can get stuck in that moment, you know, and forget that, hey, if you don't work at it, it's not going to stick around forever. And if you don't build it, it's not going to be sustainable. But that doesn't mean that that realization isn't incredibly powerful. But of course, at some point, reality comes back and certain issues begin to dog us. And we talked about this often on the show. Is the business that you've created that allows you that freedom you're seeking sustainable? And does it have the potential for growth? It was a nice arrangement for a while until we realized <laughs> there's the, the consulting problem, which is you only have so many hours in the day. It was the same thing with his chess videos. He didn't have time to do anything else because he was spending 20 hours a week teaching chess and the other 15 hours a week prepping for it. So we decided to try to switch to products, which was basically an instant hit. We actually had realized there was a big mismatch between our fans and what we were offering, which I think is pretty common for businesses in the beginning. So what we were offering is classes and our main customers were typically parents 
specifically parents like in Asia was our, really our main market that wanted their kids to get better at chess, whereas our fans weren't kids. Most of them were just adult chess players. Most of them weren't interested in private tutoring. But when we started selling courses, it took off right away. And that was in late 2012, mid to late 2012. And so the courses outdid the private tutoring like three to one within a matter of months, right? So we were like, okay, by that point, we're making 10 grand a month on chess videos and two grand a month on tutoring, which is taking up all my partner's time. It didn't make sense anymore. So first we stopped taking students, new students. And then within a few months, we decided to just shut down shop altogether. And that's pretty much been the business model since then is just selling chess videos, which sometimes we call them courses because they include some other stuff like PDF files and something called the PGN files, which is basically the chess notation. So what we were putting out on YouTube, sure, the videos is also what we were selling, just much longer and in-depth versions. And ultimately, iChess turned into a very significant business for you both, correct? Yeah. You know, we had some good years and some bad years. I remember in December 2012, we were both in Rio for just New Year's and we had broke 10 grand in revenue for the first time, which I know now would be considered a very, very small business. But at the time, I felt like the smartest person on the planet because <laughs> I hadn't been part of the DC yet and part of this community where I realized there's so many other people like me out there. I, I thought I was the first one to crack this code. I remember the first time we broke six figures in a month. I think it was four years later, exactly to the day. And then right around a million dollars in revenue, 1.1, I think is where we peaked. We kind of flattened out for a while at that revenue and expenses went up a little bit. But overall, we had maintained just around that level for the final two years that I was in the business. So yeah, it became quite a large business. Freddie, you mentioned that you and your business partner had really different personalities. It doesn't seem like that was really a problem as friends. When did that start to become a problem in the business? I wouldn't say necessarily we have different personalities. Actually, in some ways, we're very similar. I think really the main issue was what we were kind of defining as what we want as our lifestyle and even what we really define as success so he really likes to work a lot. I mean, even in Buenos Aires, he was always working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And I don't really consider myself to be a slacker. I work pretty hard, but I'm not part of the Gary Vaynerchuk cult of you got to wake up at you know 4 a.m. and work until you completely collapse and things like that. And I just don't see the point of living your life if just work is the only thing you really have. You know, it's funny, you just did this this podcast about, I think it was called the, I haven't read the book, The War of... The War of Art. The War of Art, right, right. I was just listening to that episode where it seems like the author kind of has that same mentality where it's like, well, you know, are you an amateur or are you a pro? So are you willing to do the 80 hours a week for the next, you know, five, six years or are you not? And I think... One thing you really have to consider is how passionate you are about what you're doing. And if you're not super passionate about your work all the time, like that's okay. I don't think most people really are. Work is going to be more of something that supports yourself, that you kind of enjoy and you like to do, but you have lots of hobbies and interests outside 
of your job. So I think that's something that you really have to consider. Like if you're not passionate about something, maybe you can put 20 to 30 hours a week and not feel super burnout about it. But if you are like, for example, I have one friend in Atlanta, he runs a media company that they, they used to do like music videos. Now they're more focused on special effects and things like that. And he basically has spent all his entire 20s and now well into his 30s working insane hours all the time. And I just asked him, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you sacrifice it all? And he's just like, I'm so passionate about what we do for me. I, I don't even count the hours I'm putting in a week. And I felt that was a very different mentality from kind of what I had and what I was feeling towards iChess. So I think really the main problem started arising after my business partner decided to get married and have kids because he felt a lot more pressure to save more money and make more money and grow the business a lot more. Plus, since he plays chess, I think he was a lot more excited to work in the industry and meet all these chess celebrities. We've worked with pretty much up to the top most famous chess players on earth. We've worked with world chess champions like Kasparov's main rival. We've worked with the highest rated female player of all time for him and his employees like on our well our formerly our employees it was very exciting but for me it just wasn't so it was it took more and more effort to keep up with him until the point i just kind of couldn't do it anymore how did that conflict manifest freddie well it's funny in the beginning it was me that was working more because once Will decided to get married and have kids, at the time, I just really wasn't making a lot of money. It was making enough, but not enough to have a family. So he had to get a corporate job for a few years. And that, I think, saved the business marriage for at least two years, because what we decided then is I was going to get double the salary he was, which, mind you, is not a lot. Let's just say he would make 20 grand and I would make 40 for two years, something like that, right? Enough for a living, which it was a nice arrangement for him too, because he was working 60, 70 hours a week uh, in total, maybe 45, 50 hours a week at Career Builder, and then another 10 to 20 hours a week on iChess. And I was working maybe 20, 25 hours a week, a little bit more, but the tension really started rising almost immediately when he quit his corporate job because it's no joke there at, at these businesses working sales. It was very competitive, very stressful, very long hours. For him, going to just iChess full time was a break. For me, it was going from Coconut Cowboy to full time, which I had never really done in a couple of years, and I didn't really adjust to it so well. And I think the biggest mistake I made on my part is forgetting that the partnership was 50-50 and it wasn't my obligation to have to work that hard or to do things his way it just kind of felt at the time like well this is what we're gonna this is what we're doing you're either you're in or you're in and I'm like yeah sure I'm in and like started to get very in intense company culture about crushing it and we definitely made some huge gains whether we needed to have worked so hard we worked so hard that even if only one out of the three shots that we took towards you know, building the business by getting more customers, getting customers to spend more, whatever it is, something's going to stick and something did stick. But the problem was it just started getting more and more intense. And I felt like I didn't really have time outside of the business to explore other things that I've wanted to do. And 
that's kind of where eventually I think towards by 2017, things, tensions were really, really high. We were fighting a lot. And then how would you fight? Like, what would that look like? It wasn't like a fight fight. Like we weren't yelling. It was more like passive aggressive. Like he wouldn't specifically call me out on taking off to Asia for a month, but you could tell he was upset and he would show it in, in other ways. And I felt kind of like it started to feel like he was my boss a little bit. So I would feel the need to rebel on purpose. I started to feel like like a misbehaving child, like, oh, he wants me to do that. Well, I'm going to go do this. It was all kind of immature. I think on both our parts, there was a lack of communication. And I feel like I try to kind of explain to him, like, let's try to work something out. But his personality and his entire process of thinking really changed a lot after marriage and kids. I think that's pretty normal. And so I've never been married. I don't have kids. So I don't, I don't really know what that mindset shift feels like, but it seems like there's not as much room for slacking off or for experimenting with different things. It's like, you know, I have a wife and kids now and, and this mortgage and all this other stuff. And I felt like it was almost my responsibility as well, where I just started to feel like, well, I'm in this business. He's kind of my boss now. I have to keep doing this where really I, I didn't. So I kind of ended up stuck in this situation for two years where I wasn't miserable. Because if I was super miserable, I would leave, right? And if I'm super happy, I would stay. But I was kind of in this zone where it's like, well, I'm working harder than I can. And I'm resenting that technically we're 50-50 on paper, but he's getting to make all the decisions and he's getting to be my boss. But revenue's at an all-time high, profit's at an all-time high. I'm making a lot of money. I'm living abroad and saving most of that money by being outside of the US and having the lower cost of living. And I had to take that into account too. And like a lot of people in corporate jobs too, I probably ended up staying in an unhappy situation longer than I would because the money was good. I was waking up really, really late. I was going to sleep really, really late. I was not having good eating. I mean, maybe compared to some people, my eating habits weren't horrible, but by my standards, my eating habits weren't very good. It was just a whole mix of things. It reached that point where I wasn't in the mediocrity zone anymore. I was in the straight up not good zone. And for anyone on the outside, it would have been very obvious, but as anyone knows, you, you get blindsided to some of your own flaws compared to seeing them in others. And so that's when I decided that I really needed to maybe seek out some help, which is why I decided to hire Chris Reynolds as my business slash productivity coach. I think he knew I needed to get rid of this business right away, but he knew that if he told me that, that I would react in a certain strong way. So he kind of led me to figure it out on my own. So what he did is first we started working on waking up a little earlier. I got a personal chef that cooks me much better food. And, and bit by bit, it was through getting rid of all those bad habits that I finally started to have some clarity that made me realize how unhappy I was in the business at the time, which I don't really fully blame my business partner, but it's just where I was at that point. So I would say that really was a turning point was getting a coach to kind of push me in the right direction. I mean, on a good day, I was at a so-so at best on a bad day. It was, you know, near kind of nervous 
breakdown, which you would think you would know that right away, but it takes many months. Some, some people stay years in those kinds of situations without realizing the culprit of those kinds of behaviors. If you want to look good, today's sponsor is for you. Today's show is sponsored by Carl Friedrich. We know when you're out and about and traveling, you need a bag that looks great and elegant, but is also highly functional. One you can take on a plane, to a business meeting, to the gym, and drinks after. Carl Friedrich has an amazing range of stunning leather bags designed specifically for this purpose. They got backpacks, weekend bags, and classic briefcases and handbags, all with a contemporary sleek design that is Carl Friedrich's trademark. They're ideal for carrying essentials like a 15-inch laptop, notebooks, documents, clothes, and so much more. They also come with shoulder and integrated leather straps for maximum flexibility. Carl Friedrich uses the finest vegetable tanned vachetta leather, and all the bags are handmade in Italy. You gotta look at these things. They're so elegant. Whether you prefer briefcases or backpacks and the matching tech cases and wallet, Carl Friedrich has you covered and will have you looking elegant. Have a look at their website today, carlfriedrich.com, and a big thanks for sponsoring the show. So let's get back to Freddie's story. By now it's 2017, and although the business is going well, the partnership, from his perspective, less so. And there was one crucial factor that began to play on Freddie's mind. So he and Will had drawn up a partnership agreement the sort of thing that details how such breakups will be handled, but they had never signed it. I was pushing my partner for a long time to sign one because on some subconscious level, I I had a feeling that maybe this wasn't going to last forever. And he, I wouldn't say didn't want to do it. He's so into the business all the time. "Ah, It's a waste of time. I I don't have time for this. Everything's fine. Let's just crush it. So it wasn't until I, I really pushed it in 2017 that we had finally signed a business partnership. How do you think about that in retrospect? Because, I mean, signing a document doesn't take any time. I don't think it takes any time either. It's just kind of an awkward conversation to have. Was there anything awkward in the partnership deal? No, I think the main point of the partnership deal is if one of us decides that we want out, what the process is going to be how we're going to do the valuation, what's going to happen if we sell, what's going to happen if we buy one person buys another person out. And then there's like, you know, some other kind of life insurance type stuff. Like what happens if, if one of us becomes incapacitated or God forbid, you know, dies or something like that. But I think the main purpose of the partnership agreement is to decide what's going to happen if one person wants out. And that's a very awkward conversation to have. Let's do an an analogy. Imagine you're in a romantic relationship instead of a business relationship. Like you got to go to your girlfriend or boyfriend and say, hey, well, I know things are going great right now between us, but, you know, just in case we break up, would you mind signing this document that's going to outline what's going to happen? It's an extreme version compared to a business partnership, but there is some tension. And that's why people avoid having the conversation because it's almost like a lot of people feel that signing the business partnership agreement is in a very subtle form, putting that other person on notice and letting them think like, Hey, maybe this isn't going to work out in the long run. So we need to have our bases covered. And for that reason, 
people don't want to have the conversation. But we eventually did sign it, which by the time at that time, I didn't think that we were going to be breaking up the business anytime soon. The revenue and profit was at an all time high at the time. But our relationship was only so so at the time. But I, I don't think I signed it for that reason at the time. I did it because other people had better intuition that I did that eventually this was going to reach. It's so funny now, like this entire time for the last two years, everyone in the DC knows me. Everyone knew that this partnership wasn't going to work out in the long run, but no one wanted to be the person to tell me. No one wants to be that person to say, hey, you should break up with your business partner was, hey, maybe you should sign an agreement. And I didn't really understand why people were saying that. And I think it was because they knew from the outside, they could tell like this, this is not going to work out over the long run. There's too much conflict and too much of two people wanting to go in a different direction. So that's kind of why I signed it. I didn't understand why, but I figured, well, all these mentors and all these people I look up to are telling me to do this. Maybe I should. Freddie, tell me about how you approached your business partner, Will, to tell him that you wanted out of the business. So one thing I don't recommend, if it's time and you've made the decision to want out, don't wait six months to wait till the absolute perfect time. Obviously, telling someone by chat or by email, it's not very nice, especially after an eight-year partnership. But what did you do? I was waiting to tell him in person because I wanted to tell him in person. So I, I had basically made my decision by May or June of last year. And I wasn't able to tell him until late October because I kept trying to go down to Costa Rica to tell him in person out of respect. I felt like that's the best way to do it. But every time, oh, the kids, like they had another newborn, they had their third kid. It's just not a good time, not a good time. So I kept waiting and waiting. So you're just in the shower before you go to sleep. When you, The scenario just keeps playing in your head of how it's going to go down. What were you worried about? Okay, so <laughs> in retrospect, of course, if I approached it from a mature manner, it's all going to be okay. But it's pretty scary after eight years to tell someone that you, don't, you want out of the business. You're going to imagine the absolute worst case scenario. Like they're going to cry or they're going to like get angry at you or all this stuff. And honestly, if you approach it from a positive manner, especially... If you approach it about yourself and not the other person, the last thing you want to do if you are trying to get out of a business partnership is say, the reason I want out is because you this and you that and you, 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 you. And I feel like without Chris Reynolds coaching, that's probably what would have happened because that's just the most natural and that would put the other person defensive and then maybe maybe he would have gotten upset and maybe he the business would have started falling apart in the interim, which is a very common story. So I just had it focus more about me. You know, I want to work less. I want to pursue other opportunities. I want to get out of the chess industry. And when you approach it like that, why, I mean, why would the person get angry if you're not attacking them? Well, how'd it go? Oh, it went excellent, actually. So <laughs> we're in Houston, Texas on a flight to London and then Budapest to a team retreat that we had set up about six months earlier. And sure enough, he was with his kids and his mom and his wife. He's, he's got like a whole squad, you know, like a celebrity just follows him around all the time, right? Like can never get him alone for a minute. And then finally, 
we actually got a, a rewards flight with British Airways first class. And even in the lounge, he's still like on the phone and typing and just never stops this guy. So I was like, okay, this is it. The only time you're going to get him disconnected from his family or the internet is going to be on this airplane ride. They're feeding us just free flowing scotch and like all this like fancy food and hors d'oeuvres and stuff. And I don't know, after a couple of drinks, I'm all shaking and nervous. And finally, I just, I had a little document that I wrote out and kind of like, almost like a, you call it like a resignation kind of letter. And I just busted it out like, hey, look, man, I can't do this anymore. And he didn't really react too much. He just was like, yeah, you know, that's cool. I understand. So we'll discuss it. And it was very anticlimactic, honestly, four or five months of practicing with Chris Reynolds over and over again, like he was pretending to be Will. And then it was like, hey, bro, I'm out. And he's like, cool, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll work this out. Great. And that was great. We went to London. We had a great time. We had an incredible team retreat. I got to play in a simul against the world's highest rated female player of all time, this lady named Judith Polgar. A simul meaning she's playing multiple people? Yeah. A simul is when a chess grandmaster plays like 50 people at once and 99% of the time they, they beat everybody. She beat me after like 10 moves, but <laughs> I got some really cool photos where it looks like there's like a bunch of cameras like on me, like a celebrity, but it was a trick of the camera where they're actually pointing at her, but it makes me look really famous. So that was great. Great fodder for my Instagram. You mentioned your mother was worried that she would be disconnected from your old friends, family and kids. Yeah. Yeah, she was. I think it was more a mentality of, oh, business breakup, like, oh, something wrong, like what happened? She was almost viewing it like a, like a romantic breakup kind of thing. Like, are you guys still going to see each other? Like, is everything okay? Like, and I'm like, no, this is, this is not like that. Like, everything's fine. Everything's perfectly cool. The issue is just, you just can't work it out anymore. And I, I think that's kind of a common theme with business partnerships, when, when one partner gets married and has kids, their goals change and maybe the other person's goals change too. But over time, it just isn't really compatible anymore. And that's all it really was. She was worried about the personal thing, you know, that there was a fight, that something was wrong. And now that it's all done, I think she understands a little bit better. Freddie, tell us a little bit about how you hammered out a deal. So I feel like this is where I could have done a lot better. Will has multiple years of heavy negotiating experience from his time at, at Career Builder. I've never negotiated anything over, you know, <laughs> I don't know, a, a fake, you know, Gucci shoes in, in some town in China. Not, nothing. I've never negotiated any, anything bigger than that. And so I probably made a lot of mistakes. I felt like I wasn't comfortable in the, in the negotiation tension which really would have been fine if I just stuck it out a little longer. I probably would have gotten a bigger multiple or a better number. But I just felt like I was so anxious to get out that I just didn't care. Most of the negotiation actually occurred by email when I was in Kilimanjaro. And it just felt too sweet. I was like, all right, so he's offering me this amount. This is probably 20% less than what I should take. But it's all cash up front and I'm just going to feel so relieved to hit the top of this friggin' mountain knowing that the deal is done. 
that I just said, okay, whatever. And I took a number closer to 2x of the trailing 12 months, where I think I really probably deserved a little bit closer to the 3x. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not such a big deal. I have a lot of money saved up. And to get a higher multiple would really only affect my lifetime savings by maybe 10 or 15% higher. But I'm still a little resentful about it. But it, it was definitely a cool learning experience to know next time how to... I, I read all these interesting books about negotiation after the negotiation. It's so often the case that the book only resonates with you because you understand the concepts in the book. So it takes having been through it to really get it. You mentioned that it had you read Chris Voss's Never Split the Difference. You might have done some things differently. What are those specific things you, you would have done differently? So one thing that Chris Voss talks about in his book is people feel like very uncomfortable in the negotiation. The best negotiators know that it makes people uncomfortable and that's how they get their leverage to get the best number possible. It's probably part of the maybe an American mentality of trying to avoid conflict, maybe. It's not even because, you know, in in China, they try to avoid conflict, but they they don't even view negotiation as conflict. It's a completely different mindset in Asia when they're negotiating. They don't feel discomfort. They're like, no, I don't take... When I'm personally in the middle of it and a lot of people are in it, they want to finish the negotiation as quickly as possible. There's a lot of discomfort to be in the middle of the negotiation. So I think the main takeaway of that book is just... Keep your cool, stick to your guns, don't start feeling really uncomfortable during the negotiation phase, just simmer in it, get used to it, and realize you're not, you're not doing anything wrong to that person. That person's not going to hate you for negotiating hard. That's, that's the other thing. You're going to feel like the other person's going to dislike you because they're throwing you one number and you have a very different number in mind, so you feel guilty about it, right? You feel like, well... I'm just really screwing this this guy or girl over because I'm not giving but that's not it's not true. It's just that's just like some kind of thing that people have in their head. So I think the best way to negotiate is you have to get over that hump. <laughs> and the thing is I I didn't really. I was in discomfort mode that I wanted to finish as quickly as possible and therefore gave up a lot of my leverage. Whereas if I had just hung tight for just a month or two, his number probably would have gone up. But everything's easy in, in hindsight, right? How do you feel now, Freddie, that you're, you're starting something new, a whole new life? Here's what's funny. I thought that after I had sold, that my main concern would be filling up my time. Somehow, between all the stuff I'm involved in, my days don't feel that empty. Of course, they feel a little bit more empty and relaxed than they used to be. What really has hit me much harder than I had previously, what I hadn't expected at all, is seeing my bank account just drop like by 1% every month. I didn't really think that was a thing. I was like, oh, I'm going to have so much more money. Who cares if I see it going down? And But seeing my bank account go down every month is really kind of giving me a new version of stress and and figuring out how I'm going to solve this issue that I didn't see coming at all because it's all psychological, right? I mean, I have so much money. It's not a big deal to to take a few months off, but that part hit me harder than I expected. So maybe if I had to give a piece of advice for someone else is if you're trying to lower your amount of hours, 
maybe have at least something else lined up when you get out to at least cover your monthly nut. I think it'll give you something to do and will make you feel a lot more relaxed about taking kind of a semi-vacation for a little while is at least knowing maybe my savings aren't going up, but at least they're not going down. Freddie, many people can relate to that. We appreciate you sharing your story here today. Thanks for dropping by the pod and a collective wish of luck for your next venture. All right. Thanks so much. Big ups to Freddie Lansky for coming by, sharing a story, and who really contributes a lot to the community. For the last couple of years, he's hosted our DCX event in Mexico City, which has a learning and sharing component, but also an amazing way to see that city and to meet fellow entrepreneurs. I've heard so many great things about it. So big thanks to Freddie for sharing and contributing. This one is going to be posted at tropicalmba.com slash business breakups. And also grateful to those who are willing to come on the show and uh, open kimono, not just about the good stuff, but also the difficult bits of doing what we're all trying to do here, which is grow a successful location-independent business. We would love to hear your experiences of breakups or challenges you faced or had to get over. Leave us a voicemail. Check it out, tropicalmba.com slash voicemail or email us an audio comment. And that's all for this week. As always, we'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.